Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast where we discuss the long view on current trends in technology, religion, art, ethics, and culture. I'm Stephen Caradini. And I'm Chris Kreitcho. And today we're going to be talking about religious figures on Twitter, Google acquiring Nest, and creative activity as hobby or vocation. I'm really excited that this is the first Winning Slowly podcast. Uh, we've been working on this idea for a while, and we're really excited to bring you um, lots of different topics that all have to do with the long view of things. So we're going to be talking about Google acquiring Nest, but we don't care how much it costs. We're going to talk about Google acquiring Nest because it's interesting to think about the impact on people's lives, on how people choose to buy technology on what happens when the company that you've trusted gets bought by another company that you might or might not trust. We'll also be talking about how musicians make careers or choose to not make careers and why they would do that. Um, I'm going to reference um, a band that's starting a record label um, purely because it will make it possible to not have a career. But before we get there, we're going to talk about the Pope, John Piper, and other people on Twitter for religious reasons. So I'm really fascinated by Twitter because it's always been kind of a amorphous, somewhat contextless, completely unfigured, unpremised sort of, of tech tool. Um, it was the original microblogging platform um, when we didn't really know what microblogging meant, and we still don't really know what microblogging means. <laughs> and that's why we have critical problems with uh, people using uh, Twitter in a variety of unfortunate ways. Um, we can talk about all sorts of Twitter gaffes that go on every day, um, which get reported in their various industries. But we're interested in how the Twitter gaffes go on in the religious world, because there's more at stake in a religious Twitter context when a gaffe comes out than just, um, you know, salaries or things of this nature. So, uh, so we were both interested in uh, two very contrasting uh, Twitter accounts um, of the Pope, um, Pontifex, as he is noted on Twitter, and John Piper, who goes by the incredibly creative title of John Piper. Um, we're really interested because one of these figures really understands how Twitter works, um, and one of them kind of doesn't sometimes, um, and it's not necessarily the ones you would think. Interestingly, the Pope's account, and I say interestingly because, I mean, the Pope is fairly old. He's associated with a denomination that's often considered stodgy and out of date. And just to lay our cards on the table, Stephen and I are both Protestants, so, you know, about a third of the things that come through the Pontifex account, prayers to Mary and to other saints, just don't really jive with the way we do things. On the other hand, John Piper has been engaged on various new media for over a decade. He's been one of the frontline figures in evangelical circles for pastors blogging, pastors tweeting, and so forth. But the Pope seems to be the one who gets these things in terms of their context and their roles a little better. Piper may have been learning, but 
Well, as we'll see momentarily, he's struggled along the way. Right. So the Pope, who has made um, a great deal of headlines with a variety of unusual antics in the world, i.e. calling people on the phone and um, mostly just calling people on the phone because who does that? (laughs) You're the Pope. Um, But one thing that he hasn't made very many waves with is his actual Twitter. Um, so if you go to his Twitter, it looks like tweets. It, the first one that's up right now that was posted eight hours ago says, how powerful, how powerful prayer is. May we never lose the courage to say, Lord, give us your peace. Um, it's the sort of thing that works as a Twitter post. It's, it's a thought. It has no context, but doesn't really need a context. It is something that appeals to the people who are reading this particular Twitter um, but it's also not so, you know, abrasive that it would be, you know, um, offensive to people who are reading this without the context of having um, a membership in this, you know, imagined community here. Um, now, for context, John Piper's tweets are about 96% the same kind of thing and or links to posts that he's written, you know, podcast episodes that he's put up, etc. But... Every once in a while. Yeah. So, you know, John Piper put up one five hours ago that says they left the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. Acts 541. Ask God for such a soul. Very similar content. Very similar context. However, when John Piper encounters a tragedy, he tends to do this same thing. He tends to quote scripture at it. Um He's particularly fond of Job, quoting Job in a tragedy. Which makes Um, sense from a theological context. Job is the most extended meditation on the problems of pain and evil in the scriptures. It's exactly where a pastor would want to go to deal with it. But, However, the problem starts when outside of that imagined community of this Twitter follow these Twitter followers... Quoting that sort of thing without context um, just makes you really, look like a jerk. Is really offensive. Like in in Newtown um, or in the tornadoes um, that happened in Oklahoma, um, where tragically um, a number of children were killed um, when they were crushed by a building. Um, John Piper uh, tweeted. Um, Here it is. It says, your sons and daughters were eating and a great wind struck the house and it fell upon them and they are dead. Job 119. Now, this is both in keeping with how he uses his Twitter and not any analysis of the situation and even makes sense to the people who are in his particular group of people. However, the tornadoes were a collective tragedy. And so people outside his community were also engaging with the conversation about this tragedy. And this looks horrible. Because they have no context. It's just, oh, look, some pastor says, here's a spot in the Bible that talks about that. In fact, a number of authors went so far as to say how Piper was blaming the people who were hit by the tornadoes, etc. Now, if you've read... Piper at more length, and in fact, if you were to read Piper's blog posts that he published around the same time, 
Well, he traced this out a lot. He gave it context. He gave it meaning. He situated it very helpfully, I think, in the broader picture of how the Bible treats issues of suffering and pain. But tweets aren't that. Tweets are these contextless things hanging out there. And so the majority of people who interacted with Piper's tweet just saw that tweet. They never saw any of the context that he gave to it. They never saw any of the careful, thoughtful ways that he traced out how this might apply to the situation, nor any of the sympathy which he offered in those longer contexts. They just saw, oh, look, Baptist pastor smash. <laughs> they are dead. That's what they saw. Yeah, thanks. We knew that. <laughs> it's so it was really unfortunate and i'm from oklahoma originally um chris and i met in oklahoma so both of us you know have a pretty strong relationship to um the the more tornadoes i actually both of us lived about four miles south of where the tornadoes hit and both of us and, knew people affected directly by loss of property at the least in mm -hmm. these tornadoes yeah and so so I was was also kind of offended by this contextless statement. Like I've read Job, I know what he was trying to get at, um, but only because I've read all forty-one chapters of Job do I understand <laughs> that he's not saying like "Aha, they are dead." He's he's trying to say this is part of a greater story that's going on. We do not know the ways and means of God. We don't understand how this can work to be some part of a bigger picture. We are small in the shape of an infinite God who has other workings in the world. You don't get to see any of that. You just see um, your sons and daughters were eating and a great wind struck the house and it fell upon them and they are dead. Period. On the other hand, Pope Francis, um, who, to my knowledge, um, has not posted in a particular context about a particular um, event um, yet. Um, he understands that uh, there's more ways that you can interact with, you know, the life of ideas and the life of the world than having to interact directly through Twitter. Um, and even though, you know, John Piper may have, you know, Twitter on his phone and like he can just dash something off and away he goes. That's not necessarily the best response in, um, you know, a tragedy. And so even though, you know, Pope Francis hasn't, you know, taken up the opportunity to engage directly in some of these issues with Twitter, he does it in other ways. And I think that's the message that uh, we're trying to get at here is that using one medium to do everything is not necessarily the way it works. You should be able to use different media to get different levels of nuance and different levels of message and different importances of message across. And you shouldn't weigh heavily on a contextless medium when you need a context. Right. And in particular, not just can, but should have to. The moment you tweet, you've essentially put yourself in a situation where you are inherently contextless. Now, you'll see people try to get around this. You'll see people post strings of tweets. I've done that. Tech writers and religion writers, everybody I know has tried to get around that. But ultimately, you can't get past the fact that these are fundamentally bite-sized snippets that are atomic in some sense. They stand alone. And interestingly, 
Piper seems to have learned that lesson. We hit the one-year anniversary of Newtown, the tragedies that hit there. Piper did not post an individual tweet about it. He didn't post a Bible verse about it. He posted a link to a blog post where he traced this out at greater length, where it's easier to find searching for it, frankly. Someday we'll talk about how terrible Twitter's search mechanism is. Woo! But he learned, and we would like to see others learn, that you need to be very sensitive to the medium. You know, we've got guys like McLuhan and Marshall and others who famously pointed us to the reality that the medium affects the message. And that's rarely clearer than it was here. And it's something that we think people need to take a great deal more seriously. They need to recognize that the medium in which they are communicating inherently affects the way their message will be received. You can be as dead on target as you want with what you're trying to communicate, but if you put it in the wrong place, it's not going to come through. Yeah, McLuhan definitely has a lot to to teach uh, users of Twitter. Someday soon we'll talk about how Twitter uh, and Marsha McLuhan would have gotten along fabulously. Uh, let's move on to uh, another issue of uh, context, which is... Uh, Google buying Nest, and the so, internet exploded. And the and the internet exploding. So the 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 individual context is simply Google buying something, which frankly is not that interesting because Google buys things all the time. The bigger context. I was, told, I was told that Google bought Boston Robotics the other day, and I wasn't even surprised. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I I hope to see Google robots soon. The bigger context, though, is that what Google bought is sitting in the back against the background of the kinds of moves Google has been making in the consumer space over the last roughly three or four years, and the general growing perception that Google's old model motto of "Don't be evil." may have been subsumed in something less fuzzy. And We're so, not being evil, depending on what your definition of evil is. We might kick bunnies occasionally. <laughs> and so when Google buys Nest, it's set against that backdrop, and it has another rather interesting twist on it. People have been putting their data out in twist, quote, Nest for quite some time. And... For those of you not familiar, Nest is a home automation system that lets you set up rules for how your house ought to respond. You can connect it to thermostat. You can connect it to motion detector for setting off alarms if you're not there. You can do all sorts of smoke interesting de things Smoke with detectors it. as well. Smoke detectors, yeah. The trick, of course, is that in order to make all of those things work, people have been putting their data out in the cloud, essentially. Now, Google comes along and buys this, and, well, about two-thirds of the engaged internet panicked. The other third said, eh, Google all has your data anyway. And the interesting thing is people were already putting all of this data out in the cloud, and a lot of those people have Google accounts. They're already putting that data, other data, I should say, out there for Google to analyze. They've been okay up to this point with the bargain that Google lets you make, we give you cool free services. You give us lots of data about you to target our advertising. But when Google but, bought Nest, people were suddenly very, very uncomfortable. And the question is, well, why? And is there cause for that discomfort? Well, I think we disagree 
I know that we disagree on the the on on that answer. Um, the one reason that people are freaking out is because you know it's it's kind of an imposition of Google onto this space. Like Nest and you had a uh, kind of a contract, social contract, if you will, that said you're a thing. I'm a user. I like your thing. That's why I'm a user. Um, I trust you. You trust me. This works out. Um, but um, you have problems with that sort of contract with Google. I think it's. Right? I think it's not so much that I have any issue with that sort of contract with Google. I, I probably wouldn't do it myself. I've been slowly moving away from Google services, but I think I'm sympathetic to the people who feel that it's not just that Google's moving into this space generally, it's that they had a relationship with one company, with Nest, and now suddenly they have a relationship with a different company, with Google, whose behavior patterns over time have not necessarily been the same as the behavior patterns that Nest established. They've not necessarily had the same kinds of interactions with their customers, for good or for ill, a lot of people, I think, are responding, one author used the word, to the annexation of Nest by Google. It feels as though Google is stepping into an existing relationship that you had and suddenly transforming that. Maybe you trusted Nest, and maybe you trusted Nest in spite of the fact that you got all out of Google when they launched Google Plus because you just couldn't stand it and you don't want anything to do with Google. And now suddenly you're back in a relationship with a company that you don't want anything to do with. Or maybe it's a company about whom you feel neutral. Or maybe it's even a company that you like. You just don't want all of your data in the same silo. You want to have an email silo that is separate and distinct from your home automation silo that is separate and distinct from your calendar silo. And so I'm sympathetic to people's sense that, oh, man, now Google owns Nest. This isn't what I thought I was in for. Yeah, and I have a different perspective on the Internet in that I don't really see it as a uh, a consumer contract. Um, everything that I do on the Internet, I'm fully aware that I'm either using a nonprofit service or I'm using a company's service. And if I'm using a nonprofit service like Mozilla Firefox, which I'm running right now, uh, I'm aware that there's a certain set of expectations and what I can get out of this um, software. It's probably not going to be as good as for-profit things. It's probably not going to be as streamlined or have as many extensions as Chrome. Um, but I'm aware that whenever I'm using something that is a company, whether I'm the product or whether I'm paying for the product, that company is out to make a buck. That company is out to make money. Um, and so I'm aware that at any time, um, the company can fold, the company can sell, the company can um, get uh, um, acquired or acquired or whatever term we're using these days. I'm aware that my data can be shifted around because it's a commodity. So when I use the Internet, when I use anything like Facebook, Twitter, whatever, I'm aware that that data can be shifted around to any company anywhere. And so... I'm really cautious of putting anything on the internet. I mean, I'm not a Luddite over here. I'm running a podcast with you, and <laughs> I use the internet all the time. But it's just a it's just a stance that I have towards the internet, which is if I don't want some other company other than the one I'm dealing with right now to have this information, 
I'm not going to put it into the into the internet because that's that's just part of being a company is that they're trying to make a profit. Now I know I agree that it probably feels crappy um, if you don't have a stance and you feel like you have a trusting individual relationship with Nest, but I would never imagine that I have a trusting relationship with any internet company. Right. So. And I think one of the tricks there is that with things like Nest, with any other kind of home automation, really, as we're coming into this so-called Internet of Things era, where all of a sudden we're hooking things up to the Internet that aren't just websites, but that are our shoes. And to bring up an example, Stephen pointed out to me in private conversation the other day, my use of RunKeeper or your thermostat or your car, all of a sudden you're coming into a point where technologies are intersecting that did not historically intersect. Uh, there was no chance 10 years ago that your thermostat was going to share the data of how you used it with anyone at all, ever. And so people have a certain set of expectations for the kinds of products that were not historically data-sharing products. Maybe yeah. one of the takeaways from this is that people need to start reevaluating how they think about these kinds of products. Yeah, and, I think that's very true. And, and I, I think the flip side of that, though, is that companies need to be very, very careful in understanding that your messaging and your marketing to people can earn you favor or lose you favor very, very quickly in these areas. Because yeah. people have a certain amount of trust that goes into putting a device in their home. You know, if Nest is coming out there and saying, look, we want to sell you a product and Google comes along and buys them, all of a sudden, everyone's mistrust has at least a certain amount of motivation in the fact that historically, Google's not a company that sells products. They're a company that sells user information for a way of advertising and sells advertising to people. And so when you make that shift, and I think it's that shift across a divide of user expectation of how the data is going to be used and what the aims of the company are, I think that's where not necessarily that the expectations that you're outlining don't need to be what people need to start embracing, but that companies need to recognize that, look, if you suddenly shift from being a company whose promise is we're selling you a product and we use your data only to support that product versus now that company's owned by someone whose modus operandi is we sell advertising, there's necessarily going to be a lack of trust. Now, Google slash Nest <laughs> may be able to get through this, and the way they're going to be able to get through it is by Nest not acting like Google, Nest continuing to act like Nest has, and or convincing people that the trade-off is worth it, which is what Google has done all this time. Yeah. But nah, man, I, I can't wait for the day where it's like, we see that you set your service <laughs> at 68 every day. You need to buy a sweater. Yeah, We're sending and, one to you via robot. <laughs> right, right. Uh, why don't we, uh, we hook you up with our bill. Google drones to to get you something? And on the other hand, uh, one of the points I saw made is Google can very easily start selling this data to insurance companies who want to advertise to you of, oh, you're someone who acts in thus and such a way. We're going to target an ad to you for lower insurance if you install this kind of heating unit or if you behave in this what you know if you use your nest yeah. to set up security i think the the takeaway here is twofold one you're absolutely right people need to start adjusting their expectations any networked device your data is out there <laughs> and to open another can of worm, worms very briefly that we're not going to touch in detail today governments 
plural, not just the United States government, but governments plural are going to be in up ended up on all your data. Advertising companies like Google are going to be ended up on all your data. And there is no guarantee that a service you like, service that you trust, isn't tomorrow or the next day going to get bought out by a service or a company you don't trust. And you need to have those kinds of things in mind as you start making decisions about the trade-offs and the relative value of these kinds of devices in your home. Is the gain you get from being networked worth the potential cost you get from that data being acquired and used in ways you didn't originally intend it to? On the flip yeah. side for companies, can you structure your company in such a way that maybe you put a guarantee in of we will never, under any circumstances, including if we get a acquired, use this data for advertising. That's something I can see companies starting to do, and that might be a good move in wake of Nest to say yeah. we won't, under any circumstances, use this data that way, and we reject any offer to acquire us that would entail that. Yeah, I think there's definitely an expectation that users have to shift. Um, there's a, a scholar named Alexander Galloway um, who wrote a book called The Exploit with Eugene Thacker um, who points out that um, being invisible to the network is a sort of resistance to the network. Mm. Um, and he comes from a critical theory standpoint background. But, you know, the the fact is, is that I don't have a nest and I'm not really interested in having a nest. And so... Um, you know, until these things start to be, you know, come, you know, pre-inscribed in homes and such, which, you know, in 20, 25 years might be the case, um, you don't necessarily have to get a nest. You don't necessarily have to use RunKeeper. You don't necessarily have to use all these cool little widgets and, and ditties. Um, and so I think you're right that people have to expect which one of these is valuable to me or which ones of these are valuable to me in turning my invisibility in this space off essentially right um there was a a medium post um called every data point is sacred and a guy was talking about how um he turned on his um home security uh uh system it wasn't nest um it was just a home security system that was hooked up to an app so he could see when things had been accessed um and he went away on vacation and a person um, house sat for him, and he said just by you know at looking at when you know the security system was turned on and off, he could get a pretty good picture of what hmm. the house sitter was doing and what the house cleaner was doing, how long they were there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's a pretty innocuous example, right. but like you know just by you know having a connected thing, like the invisibility of you is turned off, right? Um, and in some ways, that's not a bad thing. I mean, some ways. You know, it would make, you know, potentially, um, you know, elderly or housebound mm -hmm. um, uh, people a lot safer in um, in different ways. And so this is not necessarily a terrible thing. There can be very many good aspects of right. this as well. Um, but I think that, you know, as we start to develop these network technologies on the Internet of Things that we have to, you know, balance those trade-offs. Um, where is the invisibility and what is worth not being invisible for. Right. And I think one of the yeah. real tricks there is there tends to be an assumption against technologists and and technological enthusiasts, which we assume are a fair amount of the people who might be interested in listening to this kind of a podcast, that technology is good. Technology provides benefits to people. Technological advances are always to the benefit of people. But that 
isn't really the right way to think about it. Every technology has advantages, yes, but also costs. And mm-hmm. trading off those in every circumstance is something that has to be evaluated over and over and over again. And one of the things that's difficult is things that were an advantage may become costs over time. Case right. in point, what was advantageous for people with Nest, having their data out there, may become a cost as other companies get access to the data or as Nest just becomes a part of a larger ecosystem for Google. And to move away from that example, we can see these kinds of things happening in general more often. Whereas email may have been an enormous advantage at some times, we've seen a huge move in the last few years of people trying to find ways to diminish the amount of email that comes to them. Mm -hmm. Yes, the innovation was helpful in many ways, but it's also had costs socially, in terms of time management, the sense of being always connected, those things weren't obvious when the technology came into being. And in many ways, they weren't things that could happen until other technologies came along. When email was invented decades ago, there was no always connected. There was no phone in my pocket. There was no reason why I would be getting a constant barrage of email from marketers. But as other technologies came along, the cost-benefit balance has shifted. And I think we'll continue to see the same thing. The big takeaway from that is that it's not just something you can evaluate once and be done. It's something you have to be constantly evaluating. It's for my use of RunKeeper. Well, right now I have it enabled to do lots of things, to store lots of kinds of data. That data is all available for anyone to look at if they want. But that's something I constantly have to reevaluate and say, Given how people are using these kinds of data, given what's going on in my life, is this a sensible use of my time and money and resources? Is this a sensible set of things to have public? Should I be tracking this way at all? Right. Frankly, I don't want people knowing that it took me 20 minutes to walk two miles. (laughs) 20 minutes to walk two miles is pretty great. 20 minutes to run two miles. Well, well, anyway, um, this is uh, a partially... Um, a critical aspect of uh, winning slowly is that we're not just interested in how are everything bad, right? How how is everything bad? We're not interested in why is everything great. Um, we're really interested in what are the long term effects of this going to be. How can we think about this now and in three months um, and in ten years? So this sort of of analysis of the costs and benefits and the the changing uh, relationship between those two, um, even on the same point, um, is something that we're really going to be invested in on uh, winning slowly. I think that really ties into this third thing that we're going to talk about, which is the shifting uh, space that careers um, take up in the mind of musicians. So... Um, my day job is uh, I teach at North Carolina State University, and I'm getting a PhD in digital media. And my research focuses on how musicians can make careers um, in the post-major label era. And yes, there are still major labels, but essentially this is a post-major label era in that that's not the only and mostly not even the primary way that music gets out into the world right now. Um, yes, Beyonce still can sell 1.4 million (laughs) albums, um, but that's kind of an outlier at this point. So, 
So that's what I do all day. I sit around and I think about how can musicians make careers? How can they use Bandcamp, Reverb Nation, iTunes, Amazon? How can they put these things together into careers? How can musicians gain from these tools? Um, but I was talking to um, John Hasty of Nonagon, which is a um, post-rock, um, kind of a post, post-punk sort of band from... Uh, from Chicago, um, and he started a record label called Controlled Burn Records. Um, Post-rock bands always have the best names for everything. Yeah, yeah, they do. Controlled Burn Records. And this is a really interesting title because the Controlled Burn only has two bands. It has Nonagon and it has the Austerity Project, which was a band that used to be on Hydra Head Records before it folded. Um, And their goals are essentially to put out um, records um, on their own and on their own time schedule um, because as you know both of these bands were looking for uh, a place to put out their newest record they were finding that the ways that they wanted to run their careers um, they weren't able to find a record label that would fit that um, both of these bands um, are have members who are older who've been in multiple bands um, who are interested in having families and jobs as well as playing music, um, but they're still interested in you know getting their music out, right, um, right, and putting it out into the world. And so um, I was I was interviewing him for uh, my blog, um, and we just got to talking about how there's a difference between wanting to have music as a career and wanting to have music as a hobby, um, and we just associate instinctively because this was the old pattern that if you're really good at music you should want to be doing it as a career you should be want to be making money and only having to do music Um, but there's a lot of people um, people who I mean I think you and I are both included in this as we are both uh, musicians that we just want to be able to put out really good music um, because putting out really good music enriches our lives and enriches the lives of our listeners. Right. And it's not necessarily something that um, I want to be a career musician at. Right. Um, and so it was, it's a really interesting shift that, um, that some people um, who are sufficiently talented and that could make a major label run at it just don't want to. Right. Um, There's a value in not being in a position where your livelihood depends on something. You're not subject to the vagaries of the market. You're not subject to the question of whether this is the in style. You're not one of the indie folk bands that suddenly had to add a drum kit because they were trying to make it big and Mumford and Sons came out. And all of a sudden, they're frantically scrambling to add drum kits, even though that completely breaks their sound because, well, that's how Mm -hmm. Mumford did it. But that's what the public is clamoring for. There's an advantage to being in the market in that if it's something you really love, maybe you can get away with not having to work that soul deadening day job. But there's a disadvantage to being in the market, which is that, well, sometimes you have to write soul deadening music to make a penny. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, sometimes being on the road is way fun. And sometimes being on the road is really terrible. Right. Um, and that's, I mean, because everybody, every job has good days and bad days. Um, and if you're, you know, passionate about music and you never want music to be work, then the best thing to do is to not make it your job. Right. Um, and the interesting thing is that in previous eras, 
that meant basically that you had to just play for your family and friends for the rest of your life. Right. Um, but in the internet era, that means that, you know, you can take control of the way that you want to have your music work. Um, and you really can have a career as a hobbyist. So Nonagon has put out several releases um, and they plan on putting out even more releases and nothing is going to stop them economically um, because they're big enough that, you know, they're able to have this record label structure. They're able to get things pressed. Um, their audience is big enough that, you know, it can sustain this project. And so um, it's not even that they're e even having to, you know, uh, there's, there's bands that don't need to lose money to right. uh to be doing what they want what they want to do and so that's a huge shift and i think that's one that's really interesting um is that um many professional artists professional musicians are um hating on the fact that it's become a very different environment for musicians um but in some ways that's great in some ways that means that they don't have to try as hard to get the same benefit that they wanted out of it, which was you can hear my music. I can play it when I want to. And it, right. we go along. The problem seems to me to arise not for groups like Nonagon, but for people who really do want to make money from it yeah. because of precisely the same factors that let Nonagon get away with just breaking even Yeah, because you have the same means of distribution available because you have the enormously wider globalized and localized audiences because you have these factors of immediate availability all of those things work perfectly to the advantage of someone who just wants to be able to get his music out there as widely as possible but doesn't care about it but for the artist who wants her work to make her a living not so much and that's where the the challenge comes in in this new era so again we're we're looking at a trade-off you have the fact that Steven can put up his indie albums on Bandcamp or SoundCloud or Noise Trade or wherever and not make a buck, but he's perfectly satisfied because he has an audience and people listen to his music and enjoy it. My 19-month-old thinks one of his albums is just the best thing ever and dances to it all the time. Which is the cutest thing it in the really world. It really is. And that's great. But on the other hand... What do you do when you're the guy who's trying to make it big? Well, the same the same factors apply, but those same things that were making it easy for Steven not to care about making a profit make it that much harder because here you are trying to make a profit against Steven, who's giving away his stuff, which maybe it's not quite as good as yours. Maybe it's only 80% as good as yours, but his is free. Yeah, and so it's, there there is a diversification of interests in the market in that people are interested in different goals with their music. Um, but I still think that there are um, ways to be successful um, as a musician. Um, there are plenty of artists that I know about um, who either tour a lot or have cut some big breaks. So I know that Jenny and Tyler tour all the time and that's their only job and they you know, they, that's their life and they love it. Right. Um, and I know a band sleeping at last, um, who was a really brilliant band who had, um, the great fortune of having one of their songs score the wedding scene in twilight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
which means fortune or misfortune that guy's... depends on how you define it. Oh no, that's fortune, literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, that's fortune because he's he's gonna be able to put out whatever he wants for the rest of his life. <laughs> so it's there are ways. Um, they look different. They're oddball. I mean, OK Go is like your quintessential oddball career makers in music. <laughs> Um, with their music videos and corporate sponsorships and but you know there's it's it's a it's a tough gig but it's always been a tough gig being a career musician has always been fraught with with trouble and turmoil and toil and um you know and that's part of why i'm interested in you know researching what i research and doing what i do is that um you know no matter how difficult it is people still keep wanting to do this um, and so I'm, you know, interested in finding out ways that we can make that possible for those people and that we can make things possible for people like Nottingham and me. So, so that's really, uh, what we wanted to talk about over this, uh, this podcast. Um, thanks for, um, listening to the first episode of Winning Slowly. You can go to winningslowly.org. Um, and yes, we chose org intentionally because who chooses org? Um, People who want to slowly... do things weird. That's who. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so winningslowly.org, uh, we will list um, a full uh, recap of the topics. Um, we'll also list a, um, a uh, bibliography of sorts, all of the things that we referenced. And we hope to see you, figuratively speaking, Uh, the next time we put out a podcast. All of our content is made available under a Creative Commons attribution license. That means you can do whatever you want with us. Just say you got it from us and don't rip us off. But use it, remix it, remash it, make it awesome. That's right. Until next time, I've been Chris Kreitcho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini.